Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Maybe you're a parent wondering how to talk to your kids about the concept of hell. Maybe you're not a parent, but you are unsure about how to address this topic with the people God brings into your life. Well, this episode is for you too, because if you can explain it to a kid, you can explain it to anyone. We're going to talk about hell on today's podcast. a very deep and interesting discussion for you today uh, on the concept of hell. I think that if every Christian were brutally honest, if we took a moment, closed our eyes, and thought about hell, we would all agree that it's beyond disturbing. If we really think about it, it actually should be something that troubles us, because if hell is something that really exists, if it's something that exists in reality, then we should take it seriously. We should see what the Bible has to say about it. And then for parents, there's the uh, added complexity of trying to figure out how to explain that to your kids. And that's particularly what we're going to talk about today. So that's coming up in a moment. But first, a couple of announcements. I've mentioned before on the podcast how I am thinking toward writing a book on progressive Christianity. Well, I'm excited to announce that last week I signed with a literary agent, and I have spent the last several days working on a book proposal. Uh, It's not finished, but I'm in the process of working on that. And I've never written a book before, but thankfully I have several people in my life who've done it before and have been successful at it that are giving me a lot of good advice and guidance and and wisdom. So please be praying for me in that process. I really just want this book to be what God wants it to be. That's my, my biggest prayer. So please keep that in your prayers. Uh, a couple other things uh, coming up on the blog. I've got my third part of the Gospel According to Progressive Christianity series. And in this uh, post, I'm going to be discussing the progressive view of redemption and restoration. So that will have to do with everything uh, surrounding the cross, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, what does the cross mean, what uh, is that element of the gospel, and then restoration, which is all the last things. So that will have uh, everything to do with heaven and hell and the return of Christ and final judgment. So be looking for that. And then one final thing, uh, I've mentioned that I have submitted two chapters for the Mama Bear Apologetics book that's coming out in 2019. Well, I just saw cover comps for it this week. They look amazing. I'm getting more and more excited about this book, and I'll be giving you more updates uh, as more information comes in about release dates and uh, how you can help promote that book and how you can get your hands on it. So I think that's all the announcements I have. Uh, Hey, let's talk about hell. 
Well, some of you may recognize my guest, Rebecca Valerius, as the co-host of the Mama Bear Apologetics podcast. She has a bachelor's in biochemistry from the University of Texas at Arlington and worked for several years as a research scientist in the protein crystallography lab. (laughs) I can barely even (laughs) say that. At UT Southwestern. It's okay. Yeah, that's way over my head. (laughs) Mine too, actually. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. At Southwestern Medical Center. She's currently studying for her master's in apologetics from Houston Baptist University. But my personal favorite thing about Rebecca is her uncanny ability to find a G.K. Chesterton quote (laughs) for literally any life situation. And I am not kidding. (laughs) So you can find her writing at mamabearapologetics.com and also on her personal blog, which is alongthebeam.com. So Rebecca, welcome. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, it's so great to have you on because, you know, I've done a couple of podcasts with your partner, Hillary, yeah. and, mm-hmm. um, I've, but I've never gotten to do one with you. So I'm really excited that you came on the show to talk about such a breezy, light, sunny topic such as hell. <laughs> so we're going yes, yes, to get into very that. Very uplifting. <laughs> yeah. It's just everybody loves to think about that all the time. So we're going to give the people what they want today. Yes. <laughs> but before we get into that, I wonder if you would be up for a little game of and what this game is called. And this is this is something I have to explain because I really do love this about Rebecca is I also love GK Chesterton, but I am I, I am not as well read as Rebecca is. She's not um, obsessive as well, I mean, I, in other words. I, <laughs> I can get obsessive. I, I just, I mean, you need a Bob Dylan quote for anything and I might be your girl, but. <laughs> oh, that's me and the Beatles. Oh yeah. yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, so this game we're going to play is called find a Chesterton quote for this life situation. <laughs> oh no. Okay. <laughs> so I have uh, a couple of life situations that I'm going to tell you, and I just want you to think <laughs> If you can come up with a G.K. Chesterton quote, or at least a paraphrase of something he said that okay. will speak to this life situation. Okay, so the first life situation okay. is you wonder how to find balance between your head and your heart. You're just having this battle where your intellect oh, is fighting oh, 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 with your emotions. Oh, oh, oh. Perfect one. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Okay, the poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It's a logician that tries to get the heavens into his head, and it's his head that splits. See, that's so good. That's just... (laughs) I I don't know if I did it right, but that's the gist. (laughs) That's from Orthodoxy, right? Yeah, from Orthodoxy. Love that book. Okay, well, that's one for one. So here's the second one. You have a friend who is constantly preaching about tolerance. Like, we have to be tolerant of all things all the time. What does Chesterton have to say about tolerance? I have another one. <laughs> this is scary. I, I knew you and would. It's funny. Yeah, this is the one that I wanted to bring up today um, to talk about hell, but it's this idea that the modern world is far too good. And we're far too good because when a religious scheme is shattered, um, and basically he's saying in a post-Christian world, when we, when we don't have this sort of unifying thought system or religious system that you, helps unify all the virtues together so that they sort of moderate and balance each other, we have all these virtues that sort of just go out and become very isolated, and then they swell to madness in their isolation. Actually, that's a C.S. Lewis quote, but it's the same idea. It's this idea that 
we value tolerance, but the, the tolerance becomes, it's, it's so disconnected from love and mercy and truth mm. that it becomes sort of a caricature of itself so that actually tolerance becomes very intolerant. Um, as we see the tolerance Nazis out there, they're like screaming tolerance and except for anyone that's intolerant sort of thing. So it becomes sort of a, a mockery of itself, if that makes sense. Yeah. He saw this coming, didn't he? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. That's I won't why, get you started. That's why I love him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, number three. So the life situation <laughs> is that you're trying to decide if progress is a good idea. So I wonder if Chesterton had anything to say about progress. Oh my gosh. Uh, do you, have you read him? I mean, do you know this? Well, so he I, had a lot to say about progress. I, I had a hunch. It's so funny that you say this because I'm writing a piece right now. And um, that's one reason why I was late tonight. I'm writing a piece for um, Literary Life, the Literary Life blog. Um, I was invited to write a piece on why we should read Ch- uh, Chesterton. And one of the things that he saw in his day in England Um, which is the early 1900s, was this sort of obsession with this idea of progress. But progress meant leaving all that was behind, all that came before us, because it was just wrong, and let's do something new. So actually, he said a lot about progress. I can't come up with an actual quote, except maybe, and and he says this, and C.S. Lewis says this too, this idea that progress does not mean leaving everything behind, but it means building up from something that is rooted and grounded. Um, uh, He did not think that progress meant kind of cutting ourselves off from the past because he believed in this idea that he calls, you'll remember from orthodoxy, the democracy of the dead. Mm -hmm. Um, This idea that tradition deserves a seat at the table when we talk about moving forward because we need to listen to the people that came before us because they were battling with these same things and we shouldn't just discard them as ignorant. Um, so I can't think of an exact quote, but no, that's, that's great. Yeah, that's great. New <laughs> isn't necessarily better, I think is, is kind of what you're saying there. Which I think is important for you with all that you do with the progressive Christianity. Yeah, um, that's true. That what you've seen, that yeah. just because, you know, we just... Well, and C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. We think because we came later, we know more. Yes, exactly. All right, last one. So the life situation is that you're trying to decide what to have for dinner, and you're just (laughs) thinking that cheese just doesn't get enough attention in literature. What what does Chesterton have to say about this? You know, there is a quote about cheese, and you know this, don't you? You set me up. I know. He's, I think he said something about um, the 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 great the greats are silent on this subject. The poets, it's the poets. The poets. The poets are poets mysteriously are silent, silent. Strangely, right on the yeah. subject of cheese. And then there apparently um, there's there's a whole thing where he kind of developed that idea about how cheese is neglected in <laughs> in some surprised. of the great you know works of literature and yes. <laughs> pretty fun. So, well, well done. You, you, you aced that as I knew you would. So let's, let's get into our subject for today. Uh, recently you wrote an article for the Christian research journal about, uh, teaching children about hell. Is it, is it abusive to teach children about hell? And congrats, by the way, that's, that's great that you got that published there. That's a, um, a great achievement. And, so, you know, we've been having a bit of fun, but obviously this is a very uh, troubling and difficult doctrine, even for adults to comprehend. 
yeah. and accept. And so, um, I mean, I don't, I honestly don't like to think about it. I'm, I don't know many people who do. So yeah. as, as parents, it can be hard to know how to explain this to our kids. So, you know, it's hard to know how much we should explain and how to go about yeah. it. So let's start with what, what inspired you to write about teaching children about hell? Richard Dawkins. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure he inspires a lot of apologists to write a yes, lot of things. <laughs> he, he does, indeed. Because he's so soft-spoken and he keeps his opinions to himself. So you know? tolerant and all of that good stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Actually, I think he really says he has no filter, right? And I think he says what a lot of people think, but they have, they're too polite to say, mm-hmm. especially English people. They're so polite. Right. Um But this is what he said in his infamous book, The God Delusion. This is the quote. He said, I am persuaded, I won't, I won't use my British accent, but I am persuaded that the phrase child abuse is no exaggeration when used to describe what teachers and priests are doing to children whom they encourage to believe in something like the punishment of unshriven mortal sins in an eternal hell. And then he goes on to say that the sexual abuse that he suffered at, uh, as a child at the hands of one of his teachers was actually mild in comparison to the idea of children being taught hell, the doctrine of hell. Wow. So that's a really startling opinion. But I think that actually a lot of people in our post-Christian age might agree with him. Mm-hmm. They might think, oh, look, that kind of God, and, and I've run into this a lot in the apologetics community with atheists and agnostics and um, others that they struggle with the idea that a good God, a loving and merciful God will let people suffer in hell for eternity for not accepting him. So, um, I, I think, I think this is something that needs to be addressed because even though Dawkins is, you know, obviously hyperbolic, you know, as he normally is, Mm -hmm. (laughs) he exaggerates, there's a, there's truth to that. And this is the cultural atmosphere that our children breathe and that the people breathe that we're trying to reach with the gospel. This is a stumbling block for us today. Well, and and yeah, you mentioned earlier that, you know, I do a lot of work in the progressive Christian world and read a lot of that literature. And um, that's very common in that world, too, is why would, you know, how could an actually good God allow some to suffer in hell. So, you know, as you work in the apologetics world at Mama Bear Apologetics and getting your master's and all of that and your interactions, is this a common objection that you come across? And, um, you know, do you run into this kind of a, a good God allowing suffering? Do you run into that in your apologetics work? Absolutely. Actually, I think, um, you know, the problem of hell is a subset of the problem of evil. And, This is actually the most important and the most common objection to God. And as a former scientist myself, it's not the scientific arguments. It's not evolution. It's not fine-tuning. It's not the problem of miracles. It's not all the philosophical arguments except for this one. When when the atheist's back is against the wall, this is the thing that that really makes them struggle the most, and it makes us all struggle. I mean, it's in the Bible. It's in the book of Job. So, and as you mentioned in the progressive church, as I was researching for this paper, I read um, some of Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. Mm -hmm. And Rob Bell is probably pretty big in the progressive movement. Oh, yeah. And yeah, and he himself has his own interpretation of how, I I don't know if you're familiar with it, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a very sort of watered down view from what, we see our Lord speaking. And I think he's progressed 
beyond, like in his doctrine, like even wherever he was at with Love Wins, he's progressed beyond that even at this point oh. too. Like I've read a couple of his more recent books yeah. recently. And I mean, it it's pretty much just not even a thing anymore. You know, just any idea wow. of there being any kind of punishment or one one way to God or any of that is pretty much just not even in his vocabulary anymore. Um, which is sad, but then when progressives hear us say something like that, they think, well, why do you want there to be a hell, right? And and that's the we biggest... We don't want it! <laughs> I know, it's the biggest um, misunderstanding, I think, is it's not we're not fighting for hell. It's not that we are hoping there's a hell. Uh, but the reality is, is that if there is a hell, then we need to take it very seriously. And that needs to be something that we don't reject if it's reality, you know? So do you think that the concept of hell is something that modern people struggle with more than say people in previous eras. And, and why do you think that is? Um, I think perhaps yes. And cause I was looking at this and I was thinking, has, have people ever been concerned that it's going to affect the mental well-being of a child to believe in hell? Has any other time period believed this? And I don't really know for sure, but it does seem like it's something unique to our time period. Um, now, of course, hell is never an, a, a comfortable topic. I mean, as you read, I mean, one of the things that was startling to me is that a lot of people assume that in the Old Testament, you have the fiery judgment, the angry God, and then you have grace and love and reconciliation and all that in the New Testament. I, I imagine Rob Bell wants to accentuate that. And I think the church naturally sort of accentuates that because Jesus does express um, a deep pity for us in the New Testament. He does have this sort of caring. He almost has this motherly, I mean, he talks about wanting to gather Jerusalem like a mother hen gathers her chicks. I mean, there is an incredible grace and love. But when I went to look at the instances of the um, teachings on hell and judgment, Jesus by far spoke about hell the most. Mm. And he spoke about it in the most terrifying and um, vivid terms more than anybody. Um, and so and it seems like when you look at, and this is something G.K. Chesterton um, noted in his book, The Everlasting Man, when he compared Jesus to a lot of the you know, popular teachers um, of history like Confucius, Buddha, um, Socrates, the traveling teachers that taught morals and moralities and ethics, he said, really, yeah, Jesus taught those things and we have the Beatitudes and all that, but he was a man on a mission. And he seemed intent on making that mission clear. And that mission was to die. And he was here to say, guys, get your house in order. You decide whose side are you going to be on. You know, repent for the kingdom of God is near. That was the greatest message that he had. And when I looked at this, this is what I saw. So, yes, we're uncomfortable with it. And I'm sure the people that heard him were uncomfortable with it as well. But um, it it's very important to take it seriously. I think we struggle with it today um, because we, again, like I was saying in, in our little quiz that you gave us about tolerance, um, you asked me the question about tolerance. I think that we no longer have a sort of understanding of morality such that we can have hold in our hands the tension between justice and mercy. 
And there is a tension there. There's a paradoxical nature. And actually part of it is just we have to be humble that we don't fully understand. Now we can understand a certain degree, but at some point we have to say it's beyond us and we just have to trust. And that's hard to do. So when Mm -hmm. I see someone like Rob Bell struggling to reconcile it and struggling to sort of um, answer the spirit of the age that is so obsessed with tolerance, with changing his own views. I, I, I kind of have a heart for him. I understand. But at some point we have to be humble and say, you know, mm-hmm. if the greatest of saints said that they were the worst of sinners, then we need to understand that we can know what goodness is, but it's distorted. That view is dimmed. And we have to know that um, the consequences of sin are greater than what we realize, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, too, and that just is making me think about as humans with our flawed understanding, even the way we have to, you know, we define words and mm-hmm. seeing words like mercy and justice as as opposites and really, you know, God's nature and character is not at odds with itself. Right. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's all justice, all mercy, and there's no contradiction between the two in his nature. But I think when we bring in our our faulty definitions of those words yeah. and, and the baggage we bring, then we can kind of get uh, a misunderstanding. Well, you're talking about, about <clears throat> divine simplicity. Yeah. So this idea of divine simplicity, there all those those attributes of God are united and perfectly mm-hmm. harmonized. And there's no parts. There's no parts. Like we we're time bound, yeah. finite creatures, and we 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 can be merciful and then we can be just, but we, it's hard for us to combine both of those. And part of that is just being fallen dependent creatures. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're all united in God. So yeah, that's, that's actually one of the things that I stress in my article. Um, when you teach children about this, you have to teach God's justice in light of hell but also in light of his love and mercy and grace and teach them the idea that they're all combined in him in a way that they can't be in us. And um, we can never teach of his justice and his righteous judgments apart from his love. Mm. Well, you have two girls, right? Two, two girls. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I have two kids, a little girl and a little boy. And so, you know, I haven't talked a ton about it with them yet. They're nine and six. But in light of this, in light of what we've talked about, how do we go about talking to our children about the concept of hell? Well, we don't do what Dawkins did (laughs) (laughs) and rip it out of context. I mean, you notice uh, Dawkins doesn't talk about the cross because he doesn't believe in it. (laughs) He wants to rip all these little aspects of Christian the Christian creed and, and, and view them in isolation, but really they're all united. And so I, Mm -hmm. the, the cross, the, the the concept of hell is inextricably linked to the cross. And if we try to take out hell, we diminish the cross, don't we? I mean, we unravel it. We unravel that gift of salvation. So we never teach about the concept of hell apart from Christ. And one thing I, I have to note is that Dawkins himself doesn't have Um, a scenario, you know, a scenario about my life, you know, as um, Mm -hmm. I forget the the comedian, but he doesn't have a a scenario to offer to the children that's any better. I mean, actually it's worse. Mm. Inescapable non-existence. That's what he has to offer versus inescapable hell. 
by believing in yeah. Christ. And um, I, I think I would prefer the escapable hell. And I would prefer the afterlife where justice is meted out, where people like Hitler and um, and then all of us, we are given what we deserve. In, in Dawkins' view, there's none of that. And actually, in Dawkins' view, there really is no good and evil. So he doesn't, you have to give up so much if you believe him that it's child abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you teach your children, you teach it within the context of the gospel. We teach it within the context of all of God's attributes. And then I think what's something that we have to do is we just have to prepare our children for the tension. The tension that we have this God who talks about the fiery torments of hell. I mean, Jesus uses about, you know, the worm that will not die, um, cast out into the outer darkness, the unquenchable fires. He uses these very vivid metaphors, yet he's the same God who ate with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He's the same God who, who told the thief on the cross, you'll be with me in paradise. I mean, it's just he gives this incredible gift. So there's a tension there. There's this paradoxical nature to our Lord. He is the Lord that is gentle, but yet he's turning over change tables. Um, again, I have to go back to G.K. Chesterton. But in of course. His, of course. Um, I think it's in Orthodoxy and in The Everlasting Man. He paints these pictures of the paradoxical nature of Christ. And he says, we have these extremes in him, but that's exactly what you would expect from a giant from someone mm. who is bigger. And, you know, we, we're just only seeing, we can only see little bits and pieces, but he is, he is so much higher than us and he sees a more fuller picture than we do. Um, so we have to prepare our children for that tension. Um, I think that, you know, we know what our children can handle. So um, we know their emotional ma- maturity. So as we as we gauge that, that's what we, sh- we share with them, the teachings on that. And then we talk through those things and invite them to ask questions and voice their concerns. And one of the things that I'm sure you've learned this with, with your children, when you invite them to ask questions, they will, they will, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> they will challenge They will you. lay them down. Yes. <laughs> they will take oh, you down. Yes. Yeah. Yes, they will. <laughs> Uh, Tell us a little bit about the value of imaginative engagement when it comes to teaching children about hell. (laughs) It actually sounds kind of bad, like, oh, imagine hell. Um, (laughs) Really, it's, yeah, go read Dante's Inferno. Um, I think I think really, more importantly, it's imaginative engagement with all the doctrines of our faith. And so when you think about absolute goodness and what you think about, you, 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 you um, have your children just sort of imaginatively engage with the idea of absolute goodness and being removed from that. And that's what, that's what being removed from God's presence is. And Jesus uses the metaphors of hell and of fire and a, a fire that does not die and a fire that does not quench. And actually, that's unimaginable. I mean, we eventually will burn up, but this is an eternal fire that just keeps burning. We have no concept of that kind of fire in our world. So we mm-hmm. have to use our imagination already to sort of ima- to, to envision that. So um, 
I think imaginative engagement with all of the doctrines of our faith are important, especially for children. And that's why I love, you know, what C.S. Lewis did, what Tolkien did, what writers like that did, where they, like C.S. Lewis, teach having um, a savior figure in a different world. And what would Jesus be like in that world? And here we get Aslan. And we see in Aslan, we see his goodness and we see his majesty and we see the fear that he invokes. I mean, you think of um, when Lucy, before she's ever met Aslan, is asking Mr. and Mrs. Beefer, and she said, you know, well, is he good? And and they're like, um, or, you know, is he safe? Yeah, and safe. they're like, well, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Yeah. And so it's that idea of having something that's so good that we're actually afraid of it and that we actually want to be away from it. And we kind of get a picture of that even in Isaiah, you know, when Isaiah um, is taken up and he, 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 there's a fearfulness that he mm-hmm. has. And what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips, you know, he when he's in the presence of so much goodness. So we have to have our children imaginatively engage with that. And an example that I can give is that when I was writing this paper, I asked on Facebook um, a bunch of friends um, just sort of publicly what they thought of the idea of hell is. Uh, I mean, if they thought the idea of hell was abusive, um, especially to children. And of course, a lot of my atheist friends, you know, said unequivocally, yes, that's abusive. That's horrible. Um, I had one atheist friend that's very educated, MIT educated, um, say, oh, well, you know, children are used to scary things. They kind of like scary things. There's the monsters in the closet and dragons, and they kind of believe in that stuff already. And anyway, the church is he goes, I don't think it's abusive. Anyway, the church has sort of dumbed down the idea of hell by just saying that it's eternal separation from God. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's not as bad. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, has this guy ever thought about what God, who right. God is and what eternal separation from him would be like? Yeah. And, and in reality, if we think God is the source of all goodness, well, we have so many good things in our world, don't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, this kind of plays into the idea that God is not really hidden. All the things that are good. So if we have our children imagine all the good things taken away, Mm. that's hard to imagine, but that's imaginative engagement in the idea of being separated from God, who is goodness himself, who is love himself. Um, So that kind of spoke to me you know, told me that my friend had never sort of imaginatively engaged with that. He was, it was very just intellectual for him. Mm-hmm. So, um, teaching our children to kind of think through those things and imagine what it would be like and use literature, like, um, the Narnia Chronicles are really good. Um, his, uh, C.S. Lewis is the great divorce for older kids. That's a really good, I don't know if you've ever read that one, but you no, know, I haven't, I haven't read that one. It's a really good look at kind of the afterlife and what it might be like. It's, it's definitely, um, you know, it's definitely imaginative. We don't know for sure. God doesn't tell us a lot about the afterlife, but, um, it's, it's, it's very good. I highly recommend it. Well, and that's such a, an important point there about really imagining what it would be like to be completely separated from the presence of God, because none of us have even your most angry atheist has never experienced consciousness completely apart from, from any goodness. He's the God in whom we live and move and find our being. And if Aquinas is right, he he sustains the world. Well, Colossians says Jesus sustains the world, you know, moment by moment. Um, And Aquinas, he's the unmoved mover. 
Yeah. Um, all of that being taken away, it's, it's yeah, hard to that's, imagine. It's pretty scary stuff, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, apart from imaginative engagement, what are some additional kind of more practical suggestions you can give parents uh, as they teach their children about um, just this really important doctrine? It's, 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 it's a tough thing to kind of maneuver as a parent because you don't want to traumatize <laughs> your child. Like yeah. I think I had a second grade teacher that talked about hell constantly. Wow. And it was, I don't think it was in a healthy way. I used, my mom told me I used to wake up having nightmares of, oh, you know, frying yeah. in a frying pan and really kind of traumatic, you know? And so, yeah. um, so what are some practical suggestions you can give parents? I, I love what you said about sort of feeling out your child's emotional IQ and kind of going from there. Yeah. Um, but, but what are some practical things we can do? Well, first of all, um, what you talk about the 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 teacher that you had, I, I I think I had a teacher like that as well in fourth grade at a private school that I was attending. And most people that are listening to this might be um, familiar with the book Jane Eyre. There was the character Mr. Brocklehurst in yeah. there who ran the the children's orphanage, and he used hell as sort of a tool to get yes. immediate obedience. And so that's a very manipulative, coercive way. And maybe that's what. Richard Dawkins was thinking of when he said his quote, mm. um, because if you read Brocklehurst, there is no mercy. There is no forgiveness. There is right. no Christ-like love in that man at all. He abuses those children. And just, yeah, it's um, like all fear, so, all terror and just, yeah. 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 And there should be fear and terror, but it's never apart from love. And, right. and, um, you know, we should be afraid of displeasing God, but then we have the gospel. We have, we are never going to be pleasing. And we have this gift of salvation that we can be in Christ, in the pleasing one and become, and we can approach the throne of grace through him. Mm. So, um, yeah. So like I said, always teach in contact on context, um, practical suggestions, um, again, invite your children to just ask questions. And if they're struggling with something, invite them to ask you. And one thing that will that will invariably come up, it came up with me as a child, I'm sure it did with you. What about unbelieving friends? Mm. And in our age, it's increasingly more pluralistic. Like I think of my daughters, they have um, some Mormon friends. They have some friends that are um, Hindu, um, some friends that are just secular. Um, what about them? Mm. And that's a struggle. Mm-hmm. And, um, I love, um, one of the books that I re- read when I was researching this was Peter Kreeft's, um, I think I'm saying right, Peter Kreeft or Peter Kreft. I never know quite how to say it. I've heard it both ways, but I also love him. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, we're just kindred spirits. I know. Yeah. Um, I, his book, um, everything you wanted to know about heaven. I think that was the book. Anyway, it's a long title, but it's a book on heaven and hell. And one of the one of the things he says is that Jesus doesn't give us the precise population statistics of mm. heaven and hell. But what he does say is that the road is is wide that leads to destruction and the way is narrow that leads to Christ. And so what we can tell our children is just to pray for for their friends and then and then it just presses in on us more the need to pray and the need to be obedient to the great commission. Mm. Um, and we just have to say, God ultimately knows the heart. And so, um, 
you have to entrust your friends to them. And that's just something that they're just going to have to learn to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and know that God did not put their friends in their life. Nothing happens by accident. Mm-hmm. And their friends are in their life for a reason. So we're already doing that with our girls, with some friends that they have that don't know the Lord. And our daughters pray faithfully for them. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's a good thing. That's really good. And, you know, ultimately thinking about hell and pondering it and studying about it should really make us just incredibly evangelistic. Like this, yeah, this should absolutely. just kick us in the back end to, <laughs> to yes. share the gospel, right? Because, yeah. you know, if we really believe that this is a reality, then we, it, what did um, Spurgeon say? I'm going to paraphrase, but something like, I don't, everyone's going to go to hell over my dead body with me, like grabbing yes. onto their ankles, you know? And, yeah. um, and so ultimately, I it's think very humbling. It is very right? humbling. It, it's very humbling and it's uh, sobering. And ultimately, my prayer is that, you know, just for anybody listening, as, you're, as you try to talk to your kids about this, I think what you said earlier about resisting the pluralism is yeah. a really important point because our culture is so ripe with pluralism. It just yeah. it is so easy to just say, "Hey, we believe in Jesus that he's the way, but you know, whatever you want to believe is great great for you and we're not yeah. going to judge anything and we're not going to try to tell you you're wrong about anything because that's the the cultural soup we're all cooking in, you know. Yeah, and you know what? And it's not unusual. And again, if you read the Everlasting Man, Chesterton says that this sort of um, impulse towards pluralism and impulse towards just making everything equal is been, that's been around all mm-hmm. along. I mean, in the, yeah. in the ancient days, they were like, just bring your God into our pantheon and we'll exactly. add him to it to keep the peace. It's a, it's a human, natural human tendency. Right. So um, we have to resist that. Yeah, we do. And that's, that's probably the hardest thing because I, you know, when I was a kid, I know it's always been around, but I, I feel like even in the Christian world, it wasn't quite as strong as it is now. Even in the Christian world now, mm-hmm. we're, we're so, we have such a tendency to just sort of pull back like that and just say, you know, it's okay. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. But, yeah. um, but this, you know, again, if this is reality, if hell is reality, then we've got a big job to do and we have to take it seriously. So um, I just appreciate you taking time to study. I know you studied and researched a bunch for this article, and I just appreciate <laughs> you coming on here. And will, if we can now, do you have to have you have to have a subscription to the Christian Research Journal to read it? Do you? Or? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yes. Well, we'll, uh-huh. still, we'll post a link on the podcast notes where people can go if they want to subscribe yeah. and read the article. Um, and then again, Rebecca's personal blog is alongthebeam.com. And you can also find her over at mamabearapologetics.com. So Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on to talk about this difficult thing, but I, th- I think it's a good start. It's a good doorway to, to an answer. So thank you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.
Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.